Well, good morning. Uh, just a couple of announcements before we get going with the uh, rest of the service. First thing we're going to do, though, is take the offering. Uh, and if you're new here, this is just one of the ways that we worship God um, with what God has given us and the ways we celebrate um, God's provision. So feel free, if you're new, to let that pass by. Um, we're just going to get that going. Uh, we have a couple things going on. You probably saw as you walked in Operation Christmas Child boxes. Um, where we do this as a church every year, and so we have that going again. So feel free, if you know what that is, um, you're probably already kind of planning what you're going to do and what you're going to pack in the boxes. And if you don't know, definitely check it out. It's a pretty cool ministry. Um, and Kathy Ashley is heading that up this year, and she'll be out at the back table to answer um, any questions that we have on that. Um, Got to pull up my notes so I don't forget anything. Uh, family Shelter Initiative. This is um, a time where we, for an entire week, we host a homeless family that is working to get themselves out of homelessness. Um, they, we partner with an organization to do this, uh, and it's a really cool experience because um, whether it's providing uh, a meal for them or different supplies that they need for the week or even staying the night at the shelter with them, what it does is it helps bring a family uh, out of homelessness and get them back on their feet. And it's a really awesome way um, that we can just kind of give a little portion of, of what we have or a little portion of our time. Um, I know the last time it was really hard to find overnight hosts, um, and, and I've done it a couple of times, and it's not the most comfortable thing in the world to, to sleep on, on a random cot and to interact with um, new people and, and that kind of thing, um, but it's one night away. It's one night away from your bed, um, and it gives somebody else a place, a warm place to stay, especially over the week that we're doing it. We're doing it over Thanksgiving week, um, which is, I think, is just an awesome way that we can use the resources that God has given us to help um, other people. So if you haven't signed up for that, go ahead and start signing up. It's all on the meal train. And if you want more information about how to be a part of that, um, you can talk to Barrett, um, and he would love to get you connected um, in some way. Uh, we have Money Lab this week on Wednesday. At, uh, it's at Two Rivers Coffee Shop. It starts at 7. So if you're curious and going a little bit deeper into the things that we have been talking about um, these last couple of weeks, uh, feel free to go there. And it'll be a, a smaller group um, getting to just discuss uh, kind of God's word and God's calling on our hearts um, in regards to money. And then for the last couple of weeks, we've been going through um, uh, scripture readings together. We're trying to read through the whole, um, is it the whole New Testament? Or yes. Okay. Um, and we're on week five this week, um, so uh, there's tons of groups that you can get together um, if you want to get together and talk about what we're reading. We have this book called um, Messiah. It kind of ties together a lot of the things that Jesus teaches and brings about, and it's a good just overview, and it's set in a really, um, it's just an easier read than, than the way the Bible is set up. It kind of organizes the books um, and the sequence of events so that it kind of reads more like a story. So you get a, a full picture of what's going on. Uh, so feel free to, if you would like to purchase a copy, I think we still have a couple left, uh, and uh, feel free to jump into one of these groups or start your own. Uh, and if you have questions about where those groups are, um, you can talk to myself or to Dan today, and we'd be happy to get you connected. So last thing that uh, we want to talk about today is, is in our nation the last couple of weeks, um, there's been some really hard things, uh, whether it's um, two hurricanes or the shooting in Las Vegas, or the fires that are currently ravaging California. People are hurting, um, and people are losing loved ones. And it's easy for us to sit around in these times and think, where is God in all of this? What is God doing in all of this? And it's a hard question to answer because I think it's a question that's not very clear in Scripture. 
Um, sometimes God acts and sometimes God doesn't act. And, and we, we try and we do our best to explain what we think God may be doing, um, but we often fall short. But as I look at Scripture, one thing is clear, and that is that God does have an emotional response to this. When we look at the story of Jesus and Lazarus, we see that um, Lazarus is very sick and he's a good friend of Jesus. And people are sending word to Jesus and, and, and saying, Jesus, you have to come. Your friend Lazarus is sick. And he says, don't worry, don't worry. This sickness will not end in death. Uh, and, and yet, Lazarus dies. And Jesus shows up a couple days after Lazarus has already been dead and buried and, and put in the tomb. And he, he, he looks around and he sees the people mourning and the people weeping. And the scripture says that he is deeply moved. And that word in the original Greek, um, it actually comes from a horse. So it's, 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 the, it's, the, it's, the, it's the snort that a horse makes when it's, when it's indignant, when it's stomping its hoof, when it's just ticked off at something. So when Jesus comes, he sees all the death and all the pain that comes from that, and he's deeply moved. And we know what Jesus is planning to do. We know that Jesus is planning to raise Lazarus because he's already said the sickness will not end in death. And yet he's deeply moved. He's indignant at the death that he sees in the world. And then he looks at the people weeping. He weeps with them. This is the God of the universe who knows that he's going to raise this person to life again. That he's going to raise Lazarus to life and it's going to be a celebration. And yet he stops in the midst of all the power that he could have and all the things that he could do. And he just weeps. And as believers, we are called to weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn. And so I want to take a moment just before uh, we move to, to the message today to just spend some time doing that. Our words often fail us when we pray for these things. We often um, leave things out and miss things out. And, um, and so what I'm hoping to do, oh, good, that's not me. Um, what I'm hoping to do is uh, I'm just going to lead out um, in, a, in a short little one-sentence prayer um, and then if you all in your hearts um, would just silently pray the things that God brings up to you regarding these, um, these three um, tragedies that we're, we're, we're still reeling from um, here in the States. Um, and then um, I'd like us to close with the Lord's Prayer. Um, and if you know it, you can say it uh, along. I'm going to take it from Matthew 6 in the NIV. My assumption is most of us actually know the King James Version better. Um, and so feel free to say that along um, at, at the end. So let's pray. Lord, for both hurricanes that have ravaged towns and cities in our country, hear our prayers. Lord, for the fires that rage in California, hear our prayers. Lord, 
for the victims and the first responders and everybody impacted by the shooting in Las Vegas. Hear our prayers. And Lord, for anything that we don't see or haven't remembered at this time, we pray as you have taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and power and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Good morning. Thanks. <laughs> I'm, I just wanted to say before I get into the sermon how uh, pleased and glad and proud I am that Ryan is doing such a good job with this series on money. Uh, it's not an easy thing for a pastor to talk about, especially uh, it's, it's easier for someone who travels around and talks to different congregations, but someone who's a, a local pastor in their own church to talk about what Jesus and the New Testament says about money, takes, uh, I think it takes a lot of guts. And to do it well takes a, a, a lot of uh, patience and lots of brains and lots of heart. And I think Ryan is doing that. So I'm very, very proud of him. So I want to just say that. Uh, last week he talked about an image of bowls and funnels. And... Uh, I realized thinking about it throughout the week and, and being at Money Lab that uh, I don't feel comfortable with e either place. And I realized that I probably am a bowl with cracks in it. And that's about what uh, I'm not quite get to a funnel, funneling God's goods and, and love to other people. But I'm not quite a bowl that holds it. I'm a leaky bowl. And so in, in some sense this morning, you're gonna, this sermon will be, uh, here's my one joke, from a crack pot. So there we go. I'm not good at jokes. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that the meditations of our hearts and the words of my mouth would be acceptable in your sight this morning, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I wonder if we could bring up the lights more. Yeah, good. Thank you, Curtis. Yeah, I, would, I need to see my own notes, and I need to see you guys better. 1987. Imagine with me a man sitting in a small cement room 
cement floor, cement block walls, corrugated roof. It's dark. One light hangs by a wire from the ceiling. It's Good Friday. The man is alone. The man is crying. The man is depressed. The man is asking God, why me? Why am I here? Why have you called me to this place, God? His family is far away. His wife and children have gone back to their own country, far from this man's place. He starts thinking about the disciples and how they must have felt on Good Friday, losing their Savior, losing Jesus. He just died on the cross. How hopeless they felt, how grieved they felt. Pan back from the room, and you see a squatter's neighborhood. You see shacks and cardboard houses. You see dirt roads. You see trash. You smell things you don't smell in the United States. And the question that keeps ringing from this man's lips is why? I think the answer to that question has something to do with the passage of Scripture we're going to look at this morning. So we're going to leave that man in that place, and we're going to look this morning at Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17. And this is a story usually called the rich young ruler, although it doesn't say that in any of the Gospels. In, in Matthew's Gospel, I think it says this young man came up to Jesus. In Mark's Gospel, it just says a man came up to Jesus. And in Luke's Gospel, it says a ruler came up to Jesus. So I guess they just decided to put it all together, and all of them say he's rich. So they just put rich young ruler as the title, usually to how you identify this story. So let's read it together. Um, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. God. 
The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter into the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. This is a very familiar story. You probably, I'm guessing you probably have all heard it before. It's a very hard story, too, in, in that it makes some statements that are difficult to understand and maybe easy or maybe easy to understand but difficult to comprehend how they affect our lives. Before getting into this passage of Scripture this morning, I want us to... to take a step, a few steps back. It's like if we were in a movie and we're on the passage of scripture, we're going to zoom back and take a bigger look at, at the big picture so that we can understand this smaller picture better. So we zoom back and see God's big picture. And when we see God's big picture, we want to talk about God's economy. So we're going to talk first about a little bit of economics. Back when the world was created, God created everything. Everything was going well. The economy of the creation and of the garden that God had set up for, his, for, the peop, for Adam and Eve was an economy of giving and receiving. There was no money. There were no possessions. It was simply giving and receiving. And God was doing most of the giving, and Adam and Eve were doing most of the receiving. However, God gave them opportunities to give and receive, to give to each other and give back as well. Well, then we all know something happened. They ate the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, and they, were, they hid themselves, and God had to kick them out of the garden because the garden was for people that trusted God, and they had done an action of distrust in God. So, as people lived outside the garden, they developed their own economy. And this economy was not based on giving and receiving because they didn't trust each other. So human beings stopped trusting. And so they invented a, an economy of their own which was based on buying and selling. Buying and selling. And this economy was based on distrust and it, had, and it was based on having to get an exchange for whatever you gave. So this economy of buying and selling began to explode throughout the world. And everybody started using it. And everybody was using, and money was invented and so everybody was using money to exchange for things, and everybody was hoarding their own possessions and, and gathering their own stockpiles. And so God sent the law to the people of God, and the law was trying to keep the people from going too far into this economy. So God sent laws about not charging interest, laws about 
letting the poor glean from the fields. Laws about if you loan money to somebody and you take their coat as a guarantee that you'll get your money back, you can't keep their coat overnight. You can only keep it during the day. So you've got to give it back at nighttime. God set laws. If you're a slave, you only are a slave for a certain amount of years. If you go into debt and become a slave, when the, when the time comes called the Jubilee, you are set free from your slavery. God put in place all these laws to inhibit and, and box in the economy of the world. God put in laws that were controlling greed and oppression. But then God said, you know, when, I, when they went into the promised land, God said, well, I'm giving you a land full of stuff. It's going to have vineyards and houses and all this good stuff. But when you get there, you'll have so much stuff, you'll forget about me. And what happens, Israel goes into the promised land and be, within a few hundred years, they have a forgetting about God. So they need new gods. They create new gods. And one of the new gods they create is called Mammon. And this God isn't really named until the New Testament. But this God is obviously very involved in the Old Testament and throughout the history of people. The God of Mammon, the God of money and possessions. They forget about God and they take on this new God. Okay, so let's zoom back in a little bit. So, uh, verse 17, Mary. So as Jesus started on his way, you can keep that merry-go-round underneath it if you want. I don't care. As Jesus started on his way, what we notice is Jesus is on a journey Jesus wasn't like stationary and then started going. This was only a short stop. He's moving around all the time with his disciples. And as you read through Mark or Luke or any of the Gospels, you find out that Jesus is on a journey from, from, from where he was born to Jerusalem. And that's where he's going to end his journey. So Jesus is on a journey. But if we, we also need to know that Jesus is not only on a journey as a man, but as God, he's on a bigger journey. It didn't start when he was born in Bethlehem. It started in heaven when he took all of his riches, all of his power, and he laid them aside and went down to earth to be born as a baby. Paul tells us in Corinthians that though he was rich, Jesus became poor. That's the journey that Jesus is on. So Jesus is on a journey not only to Jerusalem, but from his power and wealth through poverty to resurrection. So Jesus is on this journey and a man runs up to him and asks him all of these questions. But this man hasn't received the news yet of what Jesus is about. Because Jesus is walking around. Before this guy man wa runs up. Jesus is walking around and saying things like. Blessed are the poor. Blessed, woe, to those, woe to the rich. Give to everyone who asks. Receive the Holy Spirit and the kingdom. 
The last shall be first, and the first shall be last. So Jesus is talking about the, the economy that God set originally into place, and God wants to return to that economy, the economy of giving and receiving, the economy of grace and humility. So Jesus is proclaiming this new economy. And so the rich man hasn't heard many of these sermons, I don't think, or maybe he has, and so he wants to go ask Jesus, what do I have to do to get eternal life? So he runs up to Jesus. And Jesus, who is going on this journey, looks at this man and, and, and starts talking with him about what he needs to do. But the rich man ruler doesn't quite understand that being good is not what Jesus wants. He starts out with, you know, you're good. And he kind of ends up and says, oh, yeah, I've done all the commandments, so I'm good. We're, we're good together. And Jesus says, no, only God is good. The rich young ruler doesn't understand that God's economy is not about being good. Instead, it's about being righteous. Righteous is different than being good. Righteous is being in right relationship with God's kingdom and with other people around. And this man apparently was not in the best relationship he could be with either God or the people around him. So Jesus invited him to a new relationship. The way Jesus invites him is to ask him to go and sell all of his possessions and all of his goods and give that away to the poor. That's how Jesus invites him to this kingdom economy. Go and sell everything. What you might not know is that what is happening between the world and God's kingdom is that the world is fading away. The world is going out, even though it doesn't seem like it nowadays. And the kingdom of God is coming in and growing. And there's, a, there's something going on with the economics. The, the currency of the world, money and possessions, is no longer of value, even though we keep using it and keep grabbing on it. The kingdom has its own currency, which is things like compassion, forgiveness, grace, love, freedom. That's the currency of the kingdom. So you've got one kingdom going out and the other kingdom coming in, and there needs to be a currency exchange. We've got to change currencies. And that's where we are. We're in the middle of changing currencies between the old kingdom and the new kingdom. And Jesus says that the poor are the currency exchange office. You want to learn what the new currency is about? Take your old currency, go to the poor, give it to them, and you'll find out what the new currency is about. The new economy. 
Everything is changing. What the world values is becoming worthless. What God values is becoming worth everything. Imagine what's going to happen to money after the kingdom is fully established. Have you ever, maybe you're not like me, but have you ever imagined what's going to happen to money? Well, in my imagination, I think, oh, maybe there'll be a museum and and money will be in the museum and they'll say, yeah, we used to trade this for stuff. In my darker imagination, I think you'll go into the bathroom in the kingdom of heaven and guess what you'll have there to wipe yourself with be money because it's good for nothing else or there's going to be a parade at the beginning of the kingdom of heaven and what the confetti going to be made of maybe it's made of money chop it all up into little teeny pieces and throw it out there and let it just get wet and just sit in the streets what are you going to do with it It's not worth anything, especially to God. Let's look at a few verses ahead. Uh, Let's see, where are we? No, go back a little bit. Probably to verse... Yeah. So after this man declares that he's been faithful to the law and... He's kept all of these things. Then go to verse 21, Mary. Then it says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Have you ever thought that love is expressed by Jesus in asking this guy to sell everything he has? You ever thought, what kind of love is that? How could that be love? Usually if you love someone, you you give them more. You don't tell them to have less. Why is Jesus doing this? One, I think that one thing that's happened is in, in our culture, in our world, we've misconstrued what love is about. We've matched love up with the old economy. And so when Jesus comes with the new economy of giving and receiving, we don't understand what his love looks like. Why ask us to give up everything and give it away to somebody else? But until we can understand that kind of love, our Christian discipleship will probably be out of out of necessity out of compulsion out of fear out of guilt but Jesus doesn't want fear or guilt or compulsion from this young man he wants Love. He wants him to understand his love, and so he wants him to give everything away out of love. Jesus wants him to inherit the kingdom. And a side note here, Jesus doesn't only want his heart. You know, 
I know that we're used to saying this is a heart issue, that this is about the man's heart. It's not about his possessions or money. No, Jesus didn't come to just get people's hearts. Jesus came to get whole beings, flesh and blood, people's toes, fingers, noses, brains, hearts, souls, the hair on their heads. Why do you think he counts it? He wants us. He wants every part of us. We evangelicals, we Protestants tend to separate the heart out and say money and possessions is a heart issue. Therefore, it doesn't matter too much what I do with it. It matters where my heart is at. That is not in the New Testament. Jesus does talk about the heart, but he wants the heart and the body and the mind and the spirit. So if you're going on a journey with Jesus, he wants every part of you to go on that journey. You know, in other religions, you might end up being a, a, a floating heart or a bodiless brain in the end, but not in this one. That's why there, in other religions, you might have reincarnation. There's an essence of you that goes from one body to the next. In our religion, in our faith, Christianity, we have resurrection. Resurrection is remaking alive what was dead. So when this body dies, Jesus will, when the, in the resurrection, will take this body and make it alive again. Although I hope he makes it a lot better than it is now. <laughs> but it's going to be something of the same. We are whole people. God wants us all. All right, so that's going on in this passage. Jesus is inviting this rich young ruler to the new economy of giving and receiving. And the only way he can do that is change all of his currency in the old world for the currency in the new world. And then come and follow Jesus. So he learns how to live in the new economy. Let's fast forward to October 15th, 2017. There's still two economies. The old one is still fading away. It seems like it's taking forever to get rid of it. In fact, it seems stronger than ever because this country is really big on the old economy. And we, it's thriving. So the still two economies. But what I'm here to call from you this morning and to ask from you as a church is to join the resistance. You know, in World War II and the Nazis took over all these countries, they all had resistance fighters in those countries. Join the resistance. One way we have faced the old economy in light of the new is we join the resistance. We plot and we struggle and we surprise attack the old economy. We help it to fail. Let me tell you what I'm thinking by that. By subverting the old economy of buying and selling and supporting the new economy of giving and receiving, we become resistance fighters. What is involved in being in the resistance? One, we've got to recognize our stake in the old economy 
That's exactly what Jesus is doing with this rich young ruler. He's saying you've got to recognize how invested you are in the old economy. And he was very invested. It said he had very much, he had a lot of wealth. How invested are you in the old economy? You know, to become a disciple, you don't need to be good. You need to be desperate. And the word desperate means without hope. If you're without hope in money and possessions and the economy of this world, you're perfect for Jesus. You're perfect to become a disciple. So the first thing that needs to happen with us is we've got to lose our hope in this world and the things that surround us. A little, uh, I'll tell a little story here. Um, when I was young, a young Christian, uh, I thought that the old economy was the way God wanted things. And so whenever I would pray, I would pray that God would treat me well in the old economy. So one time I was uh, shopping for a car uh, and I wanted to get a sports car. You might imagine a real shiny thing. It was very old and, and dingy, but it was a sports car to me. And it was a Datsun uh, Roadster, with, you know, with the, the black top and the little round window in the back. And I think it was called the Fair Lady or something like that. I was so excited to get this sports car. So I was praying very hard, God, God, please let me get this sports car I don't know why I was praying. Either I didn't have the money or I needed the price to come down or something. I can't remember that part, but I remember praying a lot. And so at one point I said to God, I said, God, if I get the sports car, then I'll put a bumper sticker on it that talks about you, that says, like, praise the Lord or, or you know, Jesus is my co-pilot or something like that, you know. And so I was bargaining with God. But I saw God kind of as a Santa Claus. I was viewing him through the old economy. I didn't really understand what the Christian life was about. I actually did get the car. And I didn't put the bumper sticker on it. So first off, we need to recognize how much stake we have in the old economy. And most of us have a lot of stake in that economy. Ryan's been sharing a lot of statistics and things. I'll just share one. If you're making $32,000 a year or over, you are in the 1% of the richest people on the planet. Ident recognize your stake in this old economy. The second thing that we need to do after we recognize our stake in it is grieve. Many of you didn't know grief was a part of, a, of discipleship. Grief is a part of discipleship. In, on verse, in verse 22, when Jesus uh, says this to the man, it says the man's face fell. The word for that is actually a weather term that the skies became dark and gloomy. So first, his whole soul and his, old, his mind became dark inside like a storm. And the second word that says sad, that's actually the word for grief. And he began to grieve. He was dark in his soul and began to grieve because he had great wealth. 
whether he would have gone and sold his stuff and given it to the poor and come and follow Jesus or whether he didn't, grief is, would still have been a part of his journey. Because once you recognize your, state in, in your stake in the old economy, you need to grieve it if you want to become a disciple. You know, this, you know the steps of grief. Some of you probably have heard of the steps of grief, like denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. When you lose a person to death, they say you go through these stages at different, in different ways. I think a lot of Christians are, are, are grieving, but they're in denial. God's, God's not that kind of God. God wants me to have so much stuff in this world. He wants me to be happy. He wants me to, to flourish. That's being in denial about the new economy. Some of you, some of us go through anger. I remember early when I, uh, I, I was living uh, with the poor at one point, uh, this woman came to a house church where I was, and she was from the States, and I had been down in this church for a while with these poor people, and she uh, decided she wanted to share her blessings in the service, because we were all sharing our blessings, and she said, you know, I have this, God did this wonderful thing in my life. I went to the store, and I saw these really nice shoes that I wanted, and I, and I, I said, God, I want those shoes, and so I bought those shoes, and I took them home, and I opened the box, and lo and behold, one of the shoes was the wrong size. So I prayed to God, and I took the box back to the store, and I said, God, they've got to have that other shoe in this right size. And she went back to the store, and sure enough, she found the right shoe in that size, and God had given it to her. She's sharing this. <laughs> so I, uh, needless to say, I was ticked off. I was very, very angry. I stormed out of that house, and I was pacing up and down the streets. I wanted to punch that lady in the face. And that's a lot of anger for me. But the guy who I was working with there, he came to me, and he says, Why are you so angry? Don't you know that God starts with people where they're at? He says, he said, if she comes back here in 20 years and she's sharing another story about shoes, then you should be angry. But if this is where God is starting with her, that's where she starts the journey. The stages of grief. The third part of joining the resistance is joining a resistance community. When Jesus says in the next verses that it's impossible for human, for people, it's possible for God. Let's see, keep going. One more slide, I think, here. Yep. Nope, even one more. Uh, 27. Anyway, there it is. So Jesus says, what with, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. 
part of God's possibility for us is joining a resistance community. If you're doing this, trying to change economies by yourself and are isolated, it's going to feel and be impossible. But if you join with other people, you join with other disciples, it becomes possible because that's where God is moving with his Holy Spirit. Part of the power of money in our lives is that it, it's secret. Like, I don't know anything about the money in any of your lives. And if I asked you, how much money do you have in the bank? Not only would I be embarrassed, but everybody would be like, oh. you know, is Kurt going to tell Dan how much money he has in the bank? No, it's a secret. But that's part of the power of mammon is that we keep things like money secret in our lives. We keep it private, more private than sex. Part of joining the resistance is joining a community where you can start to share about your life with money and ask for help and ask for advice and ask for accountability. The next part of joining the resistance is hanging out with the poor. The reason I take, want to take people down, part of the reason I want to take people down in Nicaragua is because I want them to be, uh, their eyes to be opened up to the new economy. Because Jesus says, go, sell what you have, give to the poor, and come follow me. So I figure there's some value in hanging out with the poor because Jesus is always hanging out with the poor. And that's a part of God's economy. What might you find there? What kind of giving and receiving do the poor have that we don't have? And I've said this many times here, one of the valuable things that I have found living and being among the poor is hospitality. It's incredible. I just, a few weeks ago, was sleeping on a dirt floor in a house with one room and eating, ate four meals at that house. And we all slept in the same room. I'm not about to have somebody sleeping next to my bed in my room. What makes them different? How can they do that? Do they know something I don't know? Maybe they do. Part of joining the resistance is hanging out with the poor. I'm not saying they're holy. I'm saying God has a gift to give us from them. When we were down there, uh, this is a really great story. When we were down there, we were with this family, and they had two girls, and one of them was named Stephanie, or Estephanie, as they say down there. And Estephanie had, uh, was talking with Heath, and I was translating, and Heath was asking about what she wanted to do when she grows up and all of this. And it came down to where uh, she said, uh, oh, I had this assignment at school, and I drew this picture of what I believe is the philosophy of the world, and he started getting more curious, and he said, can I see the picture? And she's like, well, yeah. And she goes, and she pulls out this paper with this pencil-drawn picture. And it's a picture of a, a giant hand, God's hand, holding the earth with a star above it. And then Heath is like, Heath is going, 
whoa, this, oh, whoa, whoa. And he just keeps saying, whoa, whoa. He's like, I drew a picture just like this the day before coming down here. And so he, said, he looks through his notebook, and he's like, oh, I left the picture home, but maybe I have a picture on my phone. So he brings up this picture on his phone. And sure enough, it's a white piece of paper with a pencil drawing of a giant hand, very similar to the one that the girl had drawn, and a star up here. The only thing was missing was the earth. And I don't know what to do with that. None of us knew what to do with that. And Stephanie was, kept going, whoa, whoa, in Spanish, which is whoa. And, you know, and she just, she couldn't believe it. Heath couldn't believe it. I'm like, I don't know what to do with this. But the more I've thought of it since we come back from the trip, the more I've thought that it's the same God holding them up in Nicaragua with the dirt floor and us up in the United States. But the difference for me is that they're sleeping and eating and, and living right on the bare flesh of God's hand. We've taken it, we put some carpet over it, put some nice couches around, we covered it over with a, a nice structure, we add some, some cushy padding in there. In some ways, we've forgotten that God is the one that sustains us because we only see our stuff. That's what I got out of it. I don't know what God meant for by it, but... The fifth thing that we need to do to join the resistance is to subvert and supplant the power of money. The word supplant means uh, through force or plotting to remove, dig up, to uproot in order to replace. Now, I'm not advocating violence of that type, but I am advocating spiritual violence against the power of money in our lives. How do we do this? How do we subvert money? There's lots of ways to subvert money. Uh, you may not like some of these ways. <laughs> One of the things we did in Money Lab was we took a $20 bill and we lit it on fire. And then we wrote down, yeah, the ones laughing are the ones that did it. And <laughs> we wrote down all of our emotions about it as it was burning. It's amazing how much comes out in that setting. You can try that on your own if you want. Uh, I'm, not, uh, I'm just going to leave it there. Another way is play with money in a way that is disrespectful. I have a funny story about this that I shared at Money Lab too. One time I was teaching on money uh, to a group of young people at one house in San Francisco, and, and I lived about five blocks away. So I finished teaching the, the class and talked to them about trusting God and, and using their money for, for, good, for service. And so I walked back from that house to my house. On the way, I saw a homeless guy that I saw all the time who was also uh, mentally ill. He would stand in the street and just rock, and he would talk to no one. You could not give him food. You could not give him money. You could not give him anything. I tried so many times, and he would not take anything from me. So I was walking back, and I saw this man, and I called him Pinecone 
I just thought because there was a pine tree there and pine cones were on the sidewalk and I saw him as another pine cone. So pine cone was standing there and I'm coming to my house and he's right in front and I'm thinking, how can I give money to pine cone? There's got to be a way to do this. So I decided that I would take the money in my pocket and crumple it up in balls like trash. And I thought, oh, if he, I've seen him reach down and grab trash and cigarette butts before. So I threw it on the ground like, oh, he's coming this way. I'm going to just throw this out here like trash. He'll come by and go, oh, money, I'll take it. I thought I could give him my money that way. So I go in the house, and I'm hoping that's what happens, that he gets the money. What I don't know, and this is how God is, you never can know what God is exactly doing, is one of the young people is walking back from the teaching time, and his name is Luke. And Luke's really struggling with the teaching on money. And Luke is saying, God, I need a sign from you. I need a sign that you will take care of me and you will be gracious to me. If, if I'm going to follow you and I'm going to share my money with people and the poor, I need a sign from you, God. So the next thing I know is I'm sitting in my living room in the house, and Luke actually lived in the same house I did. And the door blows open, and Luke comes running through the house saying, Praise God! I found money on the street crumpled up. It's a sign from God about him taking care of me. What I had intended, God had intended something else. But one way to subvert money is just disrespect it. Throw it on the ground. Use it for things that it's not used for. Give it away. You know, money was never created to give away. It was only created to buy and sell, to exchange. It says exchange right on it. Giving away money is subverting it. All right, quickly move through the last few things. Number six in joining the resistance is pray for healing. Because when Jesus says it's impossible, it's impossible. If you think you can deal with your, your money and your possessions by yourself, it's impossible. You need prayer. Prayer is the only thing that changes the impossible to the possible. It's asking God to change our hearts. At the end of Mark 10, that's not in the passage here, there's a uh, blind man who keeps calling out for Jesus to heal him, and they keep telling him to shut up. And finally Jesus says, come over here. And he heals the blind man, Bartimaeus. And, and the, the line after he heals the blind man is, and Bartimaeus started following Jesus on the road. He started going on the same journey as Jesus. The rich man walked away. The blind man who was healed followed. We are blind we need healing. Pray for healing. We're not completely blind, but we have areas in our lives that are blind. That's part of joining the resistance. And finally, accept the seventh step in joining the resistance is accept insanity and receive joy. Jesus was seen as insane, possessed, a threat to the established order. He's calling us to be seen in the same way. Francis of Assisi followed Jesus and was seen as insane, possessed, a threat to the established order. 
Why should we examine ourselves? Why should we grieve money and possessions? Why should we join community? Why should we hang out with the poor? Why should we subvert and supplant the role of money in our lives? Why pray without ceasing for healing? Why accept insanity? Why should we... Why sit in a room crying and depressed in a small block house in the middle of a slum? For the same reason that Jesus did it, Hebrews 12, 2 through 3, and we'll end with this. I think you got it right, Mary. Hebrews 12, 2 through 3. It's worth the wait. Ah, there we go. Thank you. Why do all of those things? Why join the resistance? That says, in starting in verse 2, because we fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him. We do it for the joy set before us. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorned its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you have three also or just that? Okay. Look up verse three when you go home. That's your homework.